Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult All right, friends, we are live. We are here with you today. We are doing our best to kind of acclimate to some of this new uh, equipment that we have. I am uh, got a new new headset and a new microphone, and uh, hopefully this is going to uh, give a little bit of better quality uh, to the show and, uh, you know, make it a, just make it a, a better show all the way around. Uh, you're again. You're listening to Theology Matters with the Palouse, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the Jesus of the Colts versus the Jesus of the of uh, Christianity. And uh, uh, this is a talk that I have done uh, a few times, and I think it's important to do because we live in a day and an age where uh, there is a lot of confusion on exactly what is the gospel. Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, what do we do with our friends who are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? And, uh, you know, even Muslims claim that, uh, you know, they believe in Jesus. So we need to we need to take some time looking at some of those issues. So I'm glad you uh, guys joined us today. And we may be having... My good friend Adam Tucker uh, might be coming on. I'm waiting to to see if he calls in. Um, Adam, if you're out there listening, feel free to give in, give a call, and he's going to talk a few minutes about the National uh, Apologetics Conference that's coming up. I believe it is the second weekend in October, and that is going to be at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Folks, if you've never been to the National Apologetics Conference, I'm telling you, uh, you'd be in for a treat. There are people that come from all over the world uh, that come and they listen to some of the best speakers in apologetics. Men like J. Warner Wallace, uh, Gary Habermas on the resurrection. Uh, you have They've, they've had uh, such guests as Bill Dembski. Uh, Ravi Zacharias spoke there, I believe, in 2007. Uh, they they continuously uh, bring in the guys from Reasons to Believe. So, uh, like Fuzrana, he'll be there speaking. Uh, Hugh Ross is always there. Um, they will be bringing in all kind of wonderful guests. So you guys don't want to miss uh, that 
uh, that conference. Uh, the women's conference will start that Thursday. The conference itself kicks off Friday, goes into Saturday, and then Saturday evening they will start with the Ratio Christi Symposium. And uh, oh my goodness, friends, uh, Ratio Christi is one of the fastest growing campus ministries uh, in the United States right now. Several of you guys know that I'm a, uh, me and my wife are chapter directors at Winthrop University. And uh, uh, the, the symposium is a great time where other chapter directors come from all over the United States. Um, FSU has a chapter. Berkeley has a chapter. Uh, they're just all over. I think, like I say, close to 200 or more chapters and uh, it's a great time to get some training, to be able to talk to some of the other uh, chapter directors. Uh, we invite the students to come, and they have a full day of uh, uh, river rafting and just a great time. Uh, and then that Sunday is a full day of training. And uh, often they will provide the option of doing something like the uh, philosophy track uh, or the science track. And uh, it's just a phenomenal time. Uh, they they even did a uh, bioethic uh, bioethics track last semester. Me and my wife got to talk a little bit about abortion and uh, evangelism. So mark your calendar, second weekend in October. Uh, let me see here. Let me give you my personal email out there. Uh, if you guys know of any apologetic events that are coming up, let us know. And we will gladly uh, put it out over the air. Uh, it doesn't have to be just apologetics, you know, church history, theology, those, you know, anything that kind of uh, ties into that. Let us know. We want to let people know out there. My email is sola, S-O-L-A, dot scripture at Yahoo. And uh, just let us know what kind of events are going on and, and what's go- coming up. And, uh we can put that on our Facebook page. And uh, speaking of that, if you've not liked our Facebook page, you can go to uh, Theology Matters with Palouse. Just you can Google that, and our Facebook page should come right up. Uh, and uh, we'll get that out. Now, we talked a little bit last time we did the show. We got a few changes coming up. Uh, one of the changes is the name of the show. We've talked about this uh, for a little while. Uh, There's a podcast, I believe, that is already named Theology Matters. And um, I'm not sure who does it, uh, but it's been around for a while. I think, I know James White has been on the show several times. I don't know, I don't think he's the one that does that podcast. I know he's got his own podcast, The Dividing Line. Uh, But, uh, you know, we kind of want to want to change it up a little bit. We'll change our music a little bit, change the the title of the show. Uh, the title of the show will be Fide Defensor, the Defenders of the Faith podcast. And uh, Fide Defensor is Latin for exactly that, Defenders of the Faith. And uh, we're going to be changing our name to that probably within the next couple weeks. We're looking at trying to get some new design and logos and all that. Uh, secondly, me and my bride should be uh, plan on having our own website. Uh, I believe that'll be the the, the palouse dot com, and uh, all the kind of all the stuff that we're doing will be there. Uh, the ministry that uh, my wife does at the abortion clinic, um, 
Lerashio Christie Ministries. We're doing both high school and college right now, uh, as well as the radio show. The links for that, etc., will all be at that website. So, um, be be looking for that in the next uh, few weeks. We should have uh, we should have that going on. So, I'm trying to think if there's any more announcements. I don't think there is. Uh, keep my wife in your prayer, folks. Um, for those who, who may not know, um, let's see, last year in November, she uh, came down with some type of sickness. We weren't sure what it was. Uh, basically, she was losing um, power in her legs, and uh, she was starting to fall a lot. She fell several times. And uh, the first time we were leaving a Thanksgiving service at uh, a Baptist church here in town, and uh, she f- literally fell down the stairs. And uh, over the next couple weeks, it uh, got worse and worse. And uh, ultimately, um, there was one point where she fell uh, in the. She was getting up to use the restroom in the middle of the night. She fell, and she couldn't get up. And so. Uh, literally had to call the ambulance and, uh, you know, get her in there. She was in the hospital for a few weeks. Uh, I don't uh, particularly think the hospital did a very good job. Some of those doctors, they did not test her, uh, I don't believe, for everything. And uh, had sent her home with a, a diagnosis that was suspicious, which was transverse myelitis, basically a disease that attacks the uh, an autoimmune disease. Uh, and thought that was it. And uh, so she got in to see a specialist here in the Concord area. Took took about five months just to get in to see this guy, and he did several tests, and he said, you know, I don't think it's transverse myelitis. So I did some blood work, sent it away uh, to the Mayo Clinic, got the, the news back. Uh, that appears that she has uh, some form of cancer, cancer markers uh, showed up in the blood. So we've got several tests coming up now uh, where they're trying to locate the cancer. From what I understand, she, uh, the doctors do believe she has some kind of cancer. Uh, it's just trying to locate exactly what kind, whether breast, lung, ovaries, or brain, or, or whatever. So please keep us in your prayers for that. That's been... Uh, not the not the greatest place to be for the last uh, couple weeks, and uh, you know we're just praying God uses this for His glory and uh, ultimately for our good. It's not just a cliche, folks. It's easy to say that, you know, and it's it's, it's again it's one of the reasons we're pass- passionate about doing this show. People have a tendency to think theology and apologetics and this kind of stuff. It's just for for uh, you know eggheads. It's uh, it's not practical. You know, you guys can sit and argue and in your room and, you know, do philosophy, but uh, they'll say it's not practical. How's it going to help me in the real world? Well, you know, folks, as one who has, you know, came down with uh, swine flu, H1N1, 2011, almost lost my life, uh, was hospitalized 72 days, uh, still disabled from that, still disabled, on disability. Uh, on all kind of medications, etc. Uh, I've not healed from that. I left a permanent nerve damage in my legs. 
Uh, you may be able to hear kind of in my lungs uh, as I'll be speaking, um, the pneumonia scarred my lungs. And so there's there's damage there even with the, with the breathing. Uh, and so, you know, we've been through it. We've been through it. And then now this, this has come up, and we don't know how bad it is. We don't know how far along it is. We don't know. You know, we don't know those questions. Uh, but I'm telling you, theology matters. It really does. Because at the end of the day, if the Bible's not true, and it's not defensible, and it's not reasonable, and it's not rational... Um, it's as, you know, First Corinthians 15 says, we're without hope. We're, we're, you know, of all people, most miserable. And so it's the truths of the gospel that we are holding on to during this time that is sustaining us, that is helping us, that we know no matter what happens, regardless, uh, Christ is, is driving the ship. He's sovereign. He's in control. I'm not. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with that. There's nothing in the Bible that says if once you become a Christian, you don't suffer. And uh, he'll heal every physical ailment. You know, uh, I pray my wife uh, is okay, and I pray that everything turns out okay, and it turns out to be no big deal. But if it doesn't, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us doesn't mean the Bible's not true. You know, ultimately, we will all be healed uh, in, in the resurrection. You know, Jesus says in John 5, 28, Marvel not at this, for the hours coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. So I trust what Jesus says, because Jesus is God. The Bible says, uh, again, uh, you know, God cannot err. God cannot make a mistake. Jesus is God, therefore Jesus cannot make a mistake. I can trust his word. There's reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We've done shows on that. We've gone into the, the minimal facts and the historical arguments for that. It's not a blind leap in the dark, and I'm not saying it's true just because the Bible said it's true. I'm saying I think that the Bible's true because there's good reasons to believe that the Bible's true. And if Jesus, who is God and raised himself from the dead, says that the Bible is true, and he does, numerous places, then uh, I trust what he says, and he can make mistake. So those are some of the some of the issues we're dealing with folks and uh just wanted to give you an update on that people have been asking about melissa and uh when we get more details we'll let people know uh absolutely we'll let people know so let's do this let's take maybe a quick break and uh, when we come back what we will do is we will look at uh, the jesus of the Christ, jesus of christianity uh, versus the Jesus of the cults. So uh, stay with us. Don't go nowhere. When we come back, we will tackle that important topic. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly... What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. 
You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented... How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Folks, it is 18 after the hour, and we are so glad to have you with us. As I said, we are going to be looking at the Jesus of Christianity versus the Jesus of the cults. Why is this important? Well, several reasons. One, truth matters. Of course, theology matters. And if you have the wrong Jesus, then you're trusting in the wrong gospel. And it's only the true gospel that can save. Part of having the true gospel is having the true Jesus. We're going to look at a few different things. We're going to look at the textual test, this kind of outline here, the textual test, the theological test, and also how to share your faith effectively. So with the textual test, we're going to examine what the cults have to say in light of what the Scripture says. Now, uh, we'll get into the definition of what a cult is and all that. Um, just kind of put this out here up front. Uh, for this talk, I'm primarily focusing on uh, uh, not, uh, Christian cults. 
And, I mean, there's a lot of different cults, a lot of break-off groups, etc. Uh, for our purposes of this show, we're just going to be looking today at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. Uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are, are pretty much the uh, top people you're going to run into. Now, some people say, well, what about Islam or Buddhism or something? Well, they're not cults, technically, as we'll see as we look at the definition. They're, they're actually world religions. Uh, a cult is a, a group that claims to be Christian uh, and yet denies one or more of the essentials of the Christian faith. So we'll look, we'll look more into that. So, again, the textual test, we're going to examine what the cults have to say in light of what the Scripture says. A theological test, we're going to look, is their view of Jesus consistent with the theological doctrines revealed through the Scripture? Is their version of is is their uh, doctrine of Christology uh, is that consistent with what is revealed through the scriptures about Jesus, the whole scriptures, right? Can't just take one verse and uh, try and make a whole uh, doctrine off of that. You have to look at the whole of scripture. So we will look at that. We'll look at the internal coherence test. Is the cult's view of Jesus coherent within their own? theological framework, and, and uh, we'll get to that when we get to the Jehovah's Witnesses specifically, uh, some of the issues there that uh, really bring up an internal coherence problem. So a cult, this is, comes from apologeticsindex.org, a cult of Christianity is a group of people which claiming to be Christian embraces a particular doctrinal system taught by an individual leader, group of leaders, or organization which system denies either explicitly or implicitly uh, one or more of the central doctrines of the Christian faith as taught in the 66 books of the Bible. Yes, we are Protestant friends. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you're going to say uh, uh, 66 books or, or Eastern Orthodox. We are, we are uh, Protestant. Uh, so we don't deny that. So, uh, again, a cult is going to be a group of people which are claiming to be Christian embrace a particular doctrinal system. Uh, and it does talk about, hey, it could be individual leader, could be a group of leaders, or could be an organization that end up denying, uh, and it says either explicitly or implicitly, right? Either formally or maybe not formally, but implicitly, uh, one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. But we could also say, too, you could also add uh, that a cult, uh, this particular one would be speaking of theological cult, um, but so, in most cases you also have the psychological element with that as well. You have not only a theological cult, but a psychological cult. Now the difficulty with this is there are some Protestant groups uh, or, or churches that could be uh, maybe not theologically cultic, but psychologically cultic, right? I I, I knew some friends who uh, had participated, uh, went to went to a particular church, and uh, basically because they were not going to church on the Sunday night service, uh, were having their 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 uh, their faith questioned whether or not they were really Christians. Because hey, if you really love Jesus. You'd be making it to all the all the church services, and you're not. So therefore, we should question your your salvation. Well, 
course, that uh, that adds to the to the gospel. Especially as Protestants, we say we are justified by faith alone. So you have instances like that, and I've heard of other types of instances where a church might be okay um, on paper, at least theologically, but psychologically they can be cultic. So let's look at Mormonism. Now let me say this uh, up front. I have family members that are uh, live in Utah. I actually I was I grew up in Utah. Lived there for 22, 23 years and then we moved. Uh Utah's a wonderful place, friends. Uh it's a it's a beautiful beautiful city, beautiful state. Um man, if you like fishing, if you like hunting, Utah's a great state for that as well. Um, beautiful people, wonderful people, uh, very moral people, people that uh, are very loving, people that are very giving, etc. I say this all to say, um, as believers, we are commanded to be Bereans. You know, the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 17, tells us to be Bereans of the Word. And Second uh, Corinthians 10.5 we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. First Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer, an apologia, right, a defense to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that's within you. And then it says, but do this, of course, with meekness, with gentleness, with fear, etc. Um, Second uh, Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. Workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're not attacking uh, people, right? I just want to make that clear. We're not attacking people. Uh, we are looking at a particular religious system, and uh, we are going to put that up against the test of Scripture. So again, I do not endorse attacking people, right? I don't, you know, uh, attack personal character, etc. But you do test the claims that are being put forth. I would say test them against science, test them against philosophy, test them against history, and uh, of course test them against uh, the Bible. And uh, as we'll see, the Mormons claim that they believe the Bible. Let's look at some of the origins. Mormonism began with Joseph Smith, Jr., who was born on December 23, 1805. Joseph Smith stated that he was disturbed by all the different denominations of Christianity and wondered which was true. Now, I could go on a big rabbit trail here. I'm not going to do that. But I hear this even today. You know, if Christianity is true, why there's you know, so many denominations? And, and I've heard Roman Catholics uh, use this sometimes uh, to say, you know, there's 30,000 different denominations. James White's got a great video kind of debunking that. But as far as the number of denominations, I think what you would see is that in the most part, with the essentials, we're unified, right? What is the doctrine of the Trinity? What is... Um, you know, the virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, holy scriptures, right? There, there's a great amount of unity on these things. Now, I remember Dr. Dr. Ravi Zacharias being asked this one time doing a talk, and he, he had a brilliant answer. He's, he said, look, unity does not mean uniformity, right? 
um, you can still have uh, unity within diversity. So there's there's second and third order issues, things like baptisms, mo- or I should say, mode of baptism. Uh, baptism's an important thing, of course. As, as Protestants, we would not hold to baptismal regeneration, uh, but mode of baptism, whether whether infants should be baptized, do we sprinkle, do we dunk? Um, eschatology, you know, you you have pre mill, post mill, uh, ah mill, pre trib, pre rat, you know. All these things, uh, issues on the age of the earth, um, issues on uh, issues on um, how God saves. Is it monergism? Is it synergism? Etc. There, there's debate on these things, sure. Um, but that's with every system. Um, again, for example, I'm thinking of our Roman Catholic friends. There's a lot of diversity there too. On the issue of creation evolution, there's some Roman Catholics that believe in intelligent design. Uh, some Roman Catholics hold evolution. I'm thinking of someone like Jay, you know, Jay Richards uh, with the Discovery Institute, obviously a big ID proponent. Someone like Ken Miller, uh, Brown University uh, biologist. He is a Roman Catholic, but he is a diehard uh, Darwinian. Um, whether or not uh, you know it's a Thomistic view of God, or you know a, more of a, like um, uh, Molina and Molinism, uh, there's a lot of differences, and that's and that's fine. But my point is, you can still have unity, even though there's there's diversity. There's still these there's still these core essential um, doctrines that we would find agreement on, and yeah, there's there's some diversity, but that doesn't mean the Baptists and the Presbyterians have, you know, different religions. That's just, that would not be the case. It goes on to say, I'm sorry. In 1820, when he was 14, he went into the woods to pray concerning things, and allegedly God the Father in Jesus appeared to him, and, uh, let's see, appeared to him and told him not to join any of the denominational churches. Now, We'll look something up here because it's very important. There should be some some signs, some little warning flags that jump up when you read this. So he, he goes on to say, again, that Jesus appeared to him, but also God the Father physically appeared. Now, 1 Timothy 6.16 Maybe even start it in verse 15, just to make sure we have the proper context. And you guys can, you know, again, and Bieberians and and uh, check out what I'm saying. It's, but um, start in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life uh, to all things. Uh, again, giving this to Timothy here, uh, and of of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwells in an unapproachable light, who no one has has ever seen or can see, to him... Uh, be honor and eternal dominion. And goes on to say, Amen. 
So you see this. This is uh, this is going to be an issue. Uh, speaking of God the Father, saying that no one can see Him, no one has seen Him, and no one can because it's you know He dwells in this unapproachable light. Over and over in the Scriptures, you have, uh, of course, Jesus within the hypostatic union. We'll get into that more. Takes on a human nature and uh, is physical, but the Bible does not say anywhere God the Father ever takes on a physical body. Even in the Old Testament, your theologians are going to say this is, these are sometimes called uh, Christophanies or Theophanies, uh, cases like Genesis 17, 1, 18:1, uh, Moses, you know, saying, etc. But the nature or essence of God, uh, of course, cannot be seen, but uh, that's problematic to say that, uh, you know, God the Father appears to him. So this should be, should be some of the things that raise some red flags. It goes on to say three years later, on September 21st, 1823, when he was 17 years old, an angel called Moroni, who was supposed to be the son of Mormon, the leader of the people called the Nephites, who had lived in the Americas, appeared to him and told him that he had been chosen to translate the Book of Mormon, which was compiled by Moroni's father around the 4th century. The book was written on golden plates, hidden near where Joseph was li- then living uh, in Palmyra, New York. Joseph Smith said that on that September 22nd, 1827, he received the plates, and the angel Moroni instructed him to begin the translation process. Uh, the translation was finally published in 1830, and it's the Book of Mormon. Joseph claimed that during this translation process, John the Baptist appeared to him, okay, and ordained him to accomplish the divine work of restoring the true church by preaching the true gospel, which allegedly had been lost from the earth. Now, it just seems also to be somewhat problematic, but we'll get into that. What is the Mormon authority? What are the Mormon kind of? What are they? What are they reading? What is their authority? Where are they getting these claims? Well. You have, uh, let's see, about four different scriptures here that the Mormons will use. You have the Book of Mormon, which we just read about. Uh, Book of Mormon does not have a whole lot of theology in it. Uh, I think it's more supposed to be a historical account. Uh, Doctrine of Covenants is where you're going to get some of these doctrines that we'll we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, You have the Pearl of Great Price, and then you have the King James Version of the Bible. So yes, you're... Our Mormon friends will say that they believe the Bible, but what you will soon discover is when you start getting into some of the specifics. So, for example, Mormons believe in more than one God. Mormonism is not monotheistic at all. They believe the Father is a God, the Son is a God, uh, etc., we can become gods, possibly, through the process of exaltation. I'll read some of the prophets. The uh, Mormons have backed off on that a little bit now. Uh, but that was a standard Mormon teaching. But what you will see is when you challenge them on that, and you can, you can go to Isaiah 44.6 and 44.8. We'll look at some of those that say there's only one God. He doesn't know of any before him. He doesn't know of any after him, etc., what you'll find is your Mormon friends will say, well, we believe the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. 
we believe the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. And look, I, I, you know, what do you say to that, right? It seems to be kind of a stopper because, well, anything you go to to counter Mormon doctrine from the scriptures, they can just say, well, uh, uh, we don't believe that part was translated correctly. So what I've found is a very helpful tool kind of in this dialogue when our Mormon friends say, uh, you know, the Mormon, uh, the Bible's correct, you know, uh, it's correct as far as it's been translated, is to ask them, well, what parts of the Bible have not been translated correctly? Just tell me up front, I'll mark them down, and we will not go to those scriptures at all during our discussion. And you know what happens when you do that? What they will say is, we don't know what parts of the Bible are translated correctly. <laughs> and what that shows, what that goes to show, folks, is that anything that contradicts Mormon scripture is just going to be waved off as, as uh, that which wasn't translated correctly. But see, you can't do that. You know, you have the Nestle Allen Greek text. Well, I'm not even sure what edition now. 28th, probably. 28th, 29th, maybe even higher than that now. Where we can go in and they say, hey, there's a problem. There's a variant here on this particular verse. You can go in and look. Is there a variant? Is there a misspelling? Is there questions about the particular text in, um, being used? Is there a problem with it, etc.? Well, they don't do that. They just simply wave it off as it contradicts Mormon teaching. Therefore, it's, the Bible in this particular portion can't be translated correctly. Well, that's just special pleading. That's not academic, folks. It's not the way you. It's not the way you you arrive at truth. Because that's the whole question, isn't it? That's the whole thing we're looking at is, um, is it the Bible that's wrong or it's the Book of Mormon that's wrong? You can't just assume from the outset it's the Bible that's wrong. Now, uh, again, the issue is the Mormons are claiming they believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so, uh, I just again, I think that's very problematic. Let's look at some of the Mormon key doctrines. Well... There are many gods. This comes from Mormon Doctrine, page 163. There's a mother goddess, Articles of Faith by James Talmadge, page 443. Uh, God used to be a man on another planet, Mormon Doctrine, page 321. Um, <clears throat> after you become a good Mormon, then you have the potential of becoming a god. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 345 through 347, and page 3. 54. Now, some of these, <clears throat> what I've noticed is uh, when I have talked to some Mormon friends uh, or even Mormon missionaries, believe it or not, we would have those on the campus there at Winthrop. Very interesting climate there. Um, but what I've noticed is a lot of Mormons today don't seem to be aware of some of these doctrines. And I, I don't know if they're just not teaching these doctrines or or, or what. Uh, but again, these are, are by the, the Mormon authorities themselves. Um, 
Again, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 345 through 347. After you become a good Mormon, you have the potential of becoming a god. Now, the tricky thing is this, is that uh, a lot of times Mormons use the same kind of language that we use for, as far as theological language. So I remember my brother contacting me uh, one time several years ago. He's, you know, he's uh, in a good Christian church now, and he studies apologetics, etc. This was years ago. But he lives down there in Utah, and he says, you know, Devin, I don't understand it. What gives? I work with Mormons, and they say, we love Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was resurrected. We believe in Jesus. It's through the work of Jesus that we can go to heaven. Devin, if that's the case, why do we not consider them our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, because it's a different Jesus. That's that's the issue. It's a different Jesus. They use the same language. They use the same terminology, but they import different meanings into it. It's equivocation. It's equivocation. If I said, hey, let's go down to the bank, right? Am I talking about the bank by the river, or am I talking about, you know, Bank of America or something, right? You can use the same word, but if the words have different meanings... That doesn't mean anything. If I said Michael Jordan is a short, fat, little uh, little white guy that lives in Idaho and uh, is a farmer, <laughs> you know I'm not talking about Michael Jordan, the basketball player, right? Just because it's the same name or the same word being used, if I'm importing a different meaning into into the words, it don't mean the same thing. And as we'll see with these Mormon key doctrines, the Jesus of Mormonism is not the Jesus of the Bible. Mormon doctrine, uh, uh, James Talmadge, Articles of Faith, page 35, the Trinity is three separate gods. Three separate gods. That's, that is not monotheism. That is polytheism. That is a distortion. It is a misunderstanding of what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Joseph Smith, Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 120. God is increasing in knowledge. Joseph Smith, Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 3. God has the form of a man. Doctrine and Covenants, 130, uh, verse 22. God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. Really? Interesting. I thought John 4.24 says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I thought Luke 24.39 says the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. So if a spirit does not have flesh and bone, and God is a spirit, then God doesn't have flesh and bone. It's a problem. Mormon Doctrine, page 516. God is married to his goddess wife and has spirit children. Again, the Bible does not speak of these things. These are additions. This comes from other texts that have to be compared to standard of Holy Scripture. They have to be. You can't claim you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and three other books that contradict what the Scriptures say and claim that it's the same author. 
it's just not that is not coherent not coherent friends Jesus is the literal brother spirit brother of Lucifer a creation it's gospel through the ages page 15 birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of our children it was the result of natural action he partook of flesh and blood he was begotten of his father as we were of our fathers Journal of Discourse, Volume 8, page 115. That's a problem. Or that the Savior was as natural as our birth. The Bible says the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. But see, if you have this idea that God the Father is a physical man, and Jesus you know, is lit, literally the physical son, uh, then that's what you, you end up with. Mormon Doctrine by Bruce McConkie, page 547. Quote, Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. That does not square with the scriptures. That does not square with what the Bible says. Doesn't, sorry, the Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say he came that way. Through physical relations, same as you, same as me. The Bible just simply does not say that. I'm turn in my Bible here. Exactly where that's at. Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, and will be called Holy, the Son of God. Virgin birth. So you see, it just... uh, so it's logically contradictory. Both can't be true. Both cannot be true. Either she was, be, either Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit supernaturally. How that was done, I, we don't know. Um, but to say that um, he was born in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers um, is false. They cannot both be true. There's a contradiction. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 345. God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. We have imagined that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. So again, God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, sits enthroned in yonder heavens. Bible doesn't say that. As we'll see, we'll look at some of these texts. Uh, James Talmadge, Articles of Faith, page 38. Therefore we know that both the Father and the Son are in form and stature perfect men. Each of them possesses a tangible body of flesh and bones. Perfect men, Father and the, and the Son, both possess a tangible body of flesh and bones. According to Mormon doctrine, Jesus is uh, not eternally God, but was created. 
uh, he was finite. He was growing in wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and through the exalt process of exaltation, he became a god. So that, you know, the point of Jesus was finite, growing in wisdom and knowledge, etc. Well, yeah, you know, we would agree with that uh, in regards to the human nature, right? Uh, in theology, this is what theologians will call the hypostatic union. This is where Christ uh, takes on a human nature. You read a little bit uh, on this uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Um, the divine nature doesn't change because the divine nature, as we'll see, is immutable. So Jesus doesn't stop being God, and he can't stop being God, because God can't change. There's no, there's no change. So we'll, we'll come to that, because we, we're going to do a whole section on uh, prolegomena, or what, some, what, what sometimes is called before theology. Well, let us take a quick look here at the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, it's interesting, because I've been spending some... Uh, significant time with Jehovah's Witnesses as of late. Uh, let's see, tomorrow will be, I think, the fourth week now that they've came, and I don't know if we're going to get past tomorrow, because I think we're supposed to uh, tackle some of the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And, uh, you know, some tells me they may not come back after that. That's fine. They're, they're very nice people. And, uh, Enjoy the conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, let's look a little bit about the history here. Jehovah's Witnesses were begun by Charles Taze Russell in 1872. He was born on February 16, 1852. He was the son of Joseph L. and Anna Eliza Russell. Had a great difficulty in dealing with the doctrine of eternal hellfire, and in his studies came to deny not only eternal punishment, but also the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and the Holy Spirit. When Russell was 18, he organized a Bible class in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In 1879, he sought to popularize his aberrant ideas on doctrine. Uh, he co-published the Herald of the Morning Magazine with its founder, N.H. Barber, and by 1884, Russell controlled the publication and renamed it The Watchtower Announcing Jehovah's Kingdom, and founded Zion's Watchtower Tract Society, now known as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. First edition of the Watchtower magazine was only 6,000 copies each month. Today, the Witnesses Publishing Complex in Brooklyn, uh, New York, churns out 100,000 books and 800,000 copies uh, of its two daily magazines. It's, it's so funny, folks. I... Yeah, I used to do a lot of uh, witnessing with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, back in the day, and because uh, I, I used to work with with a couple of them, and um, you know we would have these discussions all day long, and I loved it. You know, it was uh, it was great. It was a great ministry. It was it was uh, it was fun. I enjoyed the guys. Gen generally enjoyed. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses that I was working with, we, we you know, they made the day go by quicker and uh, really made us think through our positions. Um, but, you know, I, I hadn't done it for a while, uh, basically, because I've, you know, been on disability and just not hanging around Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. 
but it's funny as soon as i uh started meeting some of these these guys you know they came to the house um i started noticing as i'm driving they're everywhere uh they um the other day i something had happened we had a water leak and so the the bill was outrageous so the water company said hey uh bring in your bill and uh, we'll take care of it so i go down to you know the downtown to the city and uh go to pay the bill. As I'm walking in the building, there is, uh, see, one man and two women, and in between them, they got a great big rack. Um, and on this rack, they have all these um, books and magazines. And, uh, of course, there are the Awake and the Watchtower and the Jehovah's Witnesses books. And uh, it's just, you know... Uh, driving the other day down uh, past a bus stop in Charlotte and see the same thing, you know. So they're out everywhere, and they put out a lot of books, 800,000 copies uh, of its two magazines daily. So they really do get it out. Uh, Russell claimed that the Bible could be only understood according to his interpretations, uh, a dangerous arrangement since he controlled what was written in the Watchtower magazine. This kind of assertion is typical among leaders of cult uh, religions. Right? He's the one that controls it, etc. Some of the key doctrines. Uh, there's only one God. They are, well, we'll see. They may not be monotheists. Some have accused them of being henotheists. And uh, the reason that is is because of a second key doctrine that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with it, the Jehovah's Witnesses use what's called the New World Translation of the Bible. And, uh, folks, to be nicely, to be nice about it, it, you know, to say it's an utter perversion of the Scriptures is, would be nice. Uh, it's garbage. It's utter garbage. Um, we'll talk, you know, a little more about that in depth, about as far as who translated it, etc. But it is an utter perversion of the scriptures. Um, but John one one, we'll see. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was a God. Well, that's as we'll see. That's going to be. We talk a little bit about the coherence test a lot. Whether whether something is logically coherent, and these are going to be problematic. Uh, only one God, and then they go on to see. Well, Jesus is a God. So that's the second part. Uh, let's see. The Trinity is false and is a demonic deception. They will say. Uh, members need to have the Watchtower interpret the Bible for them. So if they have particular passages they don't understand. Say they came uh, with a different passage of Colossians 1, 15 through 17, a different interpretation of this passage. Well, uh, if, it's pa- if it's an interpretation that goes against the Watchtower teachings, uh, you can't keep that, basically, <laughs> yeah, when it comes into some of their key doctrines. Uh, they say Jesus did not rise physically from the grave, but rather he rose spiritually. Uh, thirdly, Jesus is a mere creature and does not have the attributes of God. He's Michael the Archangel. Uh, the authoritative writings, uh, New World Translation of the Bible, and it's, they actually just did a 2013 
revision and update on that. So um, I think before that it was the 1984 and then 61 or 60 and then in the 50s I think it came out. So it's gone through a few different uh, translations. We can talk about that, but it's very problematic, friends. Uh, again, we're on the authoritative writings, the Awake Magazine, Watchtower Magazine, Watchtower Books and Videos. Remember, in their mind, it's a living prophet. Uh, the Watchtower, they have like the governing board, uh, and they're pretty much the ones that are speaking for God. And so uh, you pretty much, you know, it comes with authority. They're, they are, they are uh, doing Jehovah's will. In these books and magazines, etc. Now they'll say, you know, hey, test us by the Bible, test us by the Scriptures. Um, but again, remember, they don't have a good translation of the Bible. Now they will, at times, attempt to go to. You know, they'll take your Bible if you have a King James. It's normally what they're most comfortable with, uh, and will will try and argue their cases from that way. And I'll be honest, you know, hey, Jehovah's Witnesses. For myself, I find them to be uh, much harder to deal with than Mormons. What I what I find with Mormons is when you press them and put them in a corner, uh, they'll just say, you know, well, pray about the Book of Mormon, see if you get the burning in the bosom, and uh, this kind of thing, where it's just subjectivism. Uh, but as to where the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll fight you, Scripture. They'll come back and they'll fight you and. Uh, I was listening to a talk by uh, Dr. James White on YouTube talking about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You can find that talk if you're interested. Uh, but he was saying, yeah, that the, the Jehovah's Witness, they will give any seminary grad a, a run for their money. Uh, if it's a, you know, I think he was qualifying it as the, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses that uh, those that are in like 30 hours a week of study, etc., um, but I just had to say, Jehovah's Witnesses are no joke. So please don't take Jehovah's Witnesses lightly. Uh, don't take Mormons lightly. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons we do this show. Because so many churches neglect doctrine and neglect theology. The guy, one of the guys that's coming, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses that's coming, I'll give his name, but he grew up in a Baptist church, and he had these questions about the Trinity. And one day, a Jehovah's Witness showed up on his door and took him through the kind of the normal, typical Jehovah's Witness gauntlet of scriptures. Oh, yes, Jesus was created. Look at Proverbs 8. Uh, look at Colossians 1, chapter 15 through 17. He's the firstborn of God's creation, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, he's the beginning of God's creation. Jesus isn't God. If Jesus is God, how does he die on the cross? God can't die, but Jesus died on the cross. Jehovah knows all things, but Jesus says uh, he didn't know, the, you know, he didn't know all things. Um, Jehovah is, um, you know, all-powerful. Uh, you know, Jesus is limited. Uh Jesus said he came to do the will of Jehovah. Jesus, uh, Bible says that the Jehovah is the head of Jesus, etc. Well, <laughs> the average average believer does not know how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, and they hear these things, 
and they have questions. They have questions about the Trinity. They have questions about, you know, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense that Jesus is God, but how can we just know the hour of his own coming? You know, some of these things. Well, this particular Jehovah's Witness got to him, and this gentleman wrote a letter to his church, Baptist church, and told him, I can no longer be a member here. I have to withdraw my resignation, uh, and it's because I do not believe the doctrine of the Trinity. I can't believe it. False. False doctrine. Well, if you were a pastor, folks, what would you do? What would you do if you are not? I'll be ordained August 28th, and uh, my you know one of my greatest desires is to be a pastor. And I can tell you, if I got a letter like that, it would break my heart, and I would get a hold of him, and I would get a hold of that Jehovah's Witness, and I would say, let's sit down over coffee, and let's weigh these two positions, and let's fight this out over Scripture. And at the end of the day, if you're more convinced with the Jehovah's Witnesses' arguments, then okay, you know, basically I, I, I failed you if that's the case. But I certainly would not roll over and do nothing. That's not what a shepherd does, friends. This particular pastor wrote back and said, well, you don't have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity to be a member of the church. No need to leave the church. No need to leave at all. You, just, you know, you don't have to be you don't have to believe the doctrine of the Trinity to be a member here. And of course, this just confirmed in this gentleman's mind that this pastor just wants, he just wants my money. Because obviously truth doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter. The nature of God doesn't matter because you can take it or you can leave it. That's why it's important, friends. That's why it is so important that in our churches, in our sermons... We, we, we speak about justification by faith alone. We're, we're, we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. We're talking about the necessity of the virgin birth, the, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. We have to do that. See, it's, it's, it's again, it's one of these cases where so many churches, it's just application, application. How is it relevant today? Application. Well, first, there has to be an, an observation where we're observing. What does the text say? Second, we have to do this interpretation. Is it a historical narrative? Is it poetry? Is it didactic? Is it teaching us something? Then you, then you come with the, with the application, but the, you can't skip over the other two processes. Now, those other two processes are crucial. Absolutely crucial. We can't we can't skip over the hard passages. Can't skip over the hard verses. You know we're finite, friends. We don't have it all. You know we don't have all of our theology perfect. Um, so you know, look, every system, every theological system is. You know, you're going to have uh, some questions, and that's fine. You know, that's just how it is. Being finite and not having, you know, not, not knowing the end from the beginning. Uh, but the Bible is not silent on these things. And so, you know, where the Bible shouts, we need to shout. The Bible is very clear about who Jesus is. 
I was very clear on the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. And thankfully, we're not just left, you know, just with the scriptures. We also have the testimony of the church. God has given us an incredible gift in the church. I think a lot of times Protestants completely miss that. Uh, you know, it's this idea not of sola scriptura, but solo scriptura, me and my Bible, underneath the tree. Well, that's <laughs> that's not what we want either, friends. We have the testimony of Christ. We have the witness of the church. We have the councils. We have the creeds. These things are, are very important. And so I, I just say that all to say, if you're a pastor uh, and you're listening to this podcast, uh, or if you go to you know a particular church or a member at a church and you're listening to this podcast, um, you know theology matters, and uh, it's very very likely a Jehovah's Witness will show up at your door sometime in the next six months. Can you defend the doctrine of the Trinity? When he starts asking you those questions, do you know how to defend Colossians one fifteen through seventeen? I'm sitting in there with three Jehovah's Witnesses in my living room. And they're pressing me hard on these issues, right? And uh, it's nothing good about me. What it's actually done is made me have to go back and study a lot more. I'm someone that's, you know, again, I'm um, Bible college, I'm in seminary, and I'm being tested. I'm being pressed. And, you know, these guys are no joke. And so I say that to say, we need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to be ready to deal with this because God forbid you be the next one that ends up being taken away captive in a Jehovah's Witness theology because you can't defend the doctrine of the Trinity or, or, or even think, what if it's your, your own kid that's swept away with this? That's why it's important we teach theology. That's why it's important why we do apologetics. So let me let's do this. Let's take a quick break here because we're about at the top of the hour, and we're going to come back. We're going to actually we're past the top of the hour, and uh, what we'll do is we'll look at the textual test on this. Okay, we've 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 laid out the positions, we've looked at them. Uh, now we're going to start to run some of the tests, the the internal coherence, the scriptural tests, etc. So stay with us, folks. We're going to take a break for uh, two or three minutes. We will come back and we will run these tests. Christianity not only meets the needs of your heart, but it also meets the demands of your intellect as well. We have the privilege to interview Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith of our time. Does our existence make any difference? If God does not exist, then life is ultimately without meaning, value, or purpose. I can just hear the atheist saying, in light of these facts, atheism becomes implausible. Why should anyone be confident in what you're saying? The evidence makes this an eminently rational decision. Christianity is a reasonable faith. Why is the cosmos here? Or better yet, why am I here? Why did the universe begin to exist? Why did it come into being? Does it exist by a necessity of its own nature or in some external cause? When I first read that, I just scratched my head. What is he talking about? God's 
purpose for human existence is not happiness in this life. Moral values do exist. Things obviously are right and wrong. How does understanding who Jesus is help us understand the resurrection? Those who freely reject God and his love shouldn't be allowed to hold some kind of a veto power over which worlds God is free to create. Training in Christian apologetics is vital for influencing culture, strengthening believers, and winning unbelievers to Christ. We can give a defense without being defensive. We can give an argument without becoming argumentative. During this eight-week study, you will learn what it means for yourself to be a defender of the Christian faith. Logic and evidence must be our guides. Every Christian needs to be prepared to give a reason for the hope within Every Christian needs to be on guard. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Is science the only way to know something? Yeah, that seems to be a way that a lot of people assume uh, knowledge uh, comes forth, but it's really incorrect. First of all, we know that science isn't the only way to know something because science relies on logic and philosophy. So, for example, if I were to tell you that um, all dogs have a tail and I have a dog, what do you know about my dog? It has a tail. If those premises are true, then the conclusion follows. Now, you don't know anything about my dogs, but if I say, oh, let me qualify that, all my dogs have a tail, because some dogs may not. But if I say all my dogs have a tail and I have a dog, you know it has a tail. Yeah, my dog doesn't have a tail. Your dog doesn't have a tail. There you go. It has a nub. It has a nub. And, and that's probably on purpose. Uh, but so logic is one way we can know something. And science relies upon logic. Science can't work without logic. This is how we know if an experiment it proves the hypothesis or falsifies the hypothesis. True or false is does it match? Is it the same? Uh, and that's based on logic. So science owes a debt to philosophy and logic. Science also owes a debt to theology because theologically it was the Christians who said the world is orderly. Tomorrow the laws of nature will be the same as today. Therefore it is valuable for us to go and explore God's creation that an orderly, thoughtful, rational God would make certain laws in the universe and because of that we can find them out. And it is truly Christianity that began the boon of the technological revolution and the scientific revolution simply because we recognize, and by the way, the idea that lying on your uh, scientific results is wrong, those are moral judgments. Those come out of Christianity. They don't come out of science itself. Science can do certain things, okay? Science can clone a human being. They can tell you how to clone a human being. They can't tell you if you should. The only way you know that is by looking at something like theology.
Alright, welcome back to another rockin' edition of <laughs> Theology Matters with the Palou. Host Devin Palou, and we are looking at the Jesus of Christianity versus the Jesus of the cults. We're about 10 after the hour. So glad to have you with us on this beautiful Thursday. Uh, I'm out here in South Carolina, not uh, not too far from North Carolina, probably less than uh, less than 40 minutes, not uh, not too terribly far from Charlotte. But uh, been hot out here this summer. Man, it's been hot. Installed a little uh, kiddie pool for my for my little three year old. Bought a little uh, what do you call it, a little blow up pool, and she she loves spending her days out there, <laughs> just soaking in the sun and uh, splishing and splashing, just having a ball. So. Of course, summer is almost uh, over, coming to an end as we start to reach fall, which is my favorite time of the year. As I'm staring at my big Clemson Tiger football flag that's uh, hanging up here in my office, <laughs> as well as my uh, Carolina Panthers flag. Uh, we got football starting, and uh, just a great, great, great time of the year. Love the fall, love the cold weather, so bring it on. All right, folks, we've been looking at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. We've been looking at the Mormons. Uh, we said we we're going to run a few different tests on them just to see, you know, are they textually accurate? Are they uh, are they uh, internally consistent? Are they coherent? Or is there some logical contradictions within the system, uh, theological system? So let's look at John 1, uh, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, and just to be clear, we know the word is speaking of Jesus because you have John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right, that's Jesus who, who does that. So in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, the issue would be this. I think this would be the challenge to, um, say, let's take on Jehovah's Witnesses first. Um, they're going to add, they're going to say there's an indefinite article there. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, or they would say was a God. Now, uh, if you know Greek, and you want to take them on that level, uh, that's fine. I think it's probably as important uh, just to be able to, to show where they're mistaken there. Um, I don't know Greek. I'm still waiting to take some of those classes at my seminary. Um, I, I think there's some simpler ways to maybe attack this. Uh, and I believe Rob Bowman uh, points this out in his book, Should You Believe the Trinity, or Why You Should Believe the Trinity, which was a response to the Job's Witness, Should You Believe the Trinity?, um, the issue would be this. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses claim to be monotheists. There is only one God. But if the Bible is saying, if their text says Jesus is a God, uh, that's not monotheism. And if they say, well, he was a, you know, he's a little lesser, lower created God, again, this it's funny because Council of Nicaea 325, these are some of the issues they're dealing with uh, with Arius and with the Arians. Uh, 
this idea that Jesus was not eternal God, doesn't have the same essence, nature, etc., as the Father. Uh, and so <laughs> you, you you have this issue there. Uh, you know, the, the, the first Jehovah's Witnesses back in uh, 325, uh, dealing with that. But um, it's hard to say, see how you could be a monotheist and claiming Jesus is a a god. And when I brought this up to them, they'll say, well, yeah, the Bible says there's a lot of gods. And I'll ask them, well, are they true gods or false gods? Well, they're false gods. Okay, is Jesus a true god or a false god? He's a true god. Okay, then. That's more than one god. And that's why someone accused them of being henotheists, and that there's kind of one primary ultimate god, but there's still this little lesser lower god. That's 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 a problem for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, with with uh, Mormons, um, I think that's going to also be a problem because they do not believe Jesus Christ uh, has been eternally God. Now, they do believe that the universe is uh, eternal, and I think that's problematic from a scientific standpoint, not even having to get into the age of the Earth. But if you, even if you grant, okay, the universe is 13.7 billion years old, uh, it had a beginning. It's not eternal. <laughs> So, you know, I think there's a problem there just kind of looking at reality, looking at the scientific evidence that we have that the universe began to exist. The universe is not eternal. Uh, But it says he's in the beginning with God. He was God. All things were made through him. Uh, Without him was not anything made that was made. Maybe a little better text to kind of grapple here with the Mormons. Uh, Isaiah 44, 6. This is, I, I, I read out of the ESV. I'm not an ESV onlyist, so don't accuse me of heresy. I just I like the ESV, I like the NASB, I like the New King James. I'll even read the King James, but I, I kind of prefer the, the ESV. So Isaiah 44, 6, Besides me, there is no God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. See, this is this is going to be problematic if you believe that there's more than one God, and if you believe that uh, uh, you can become God and other people can become God through this process of exaltation. He says, "I'm the first. I'm the last. Besides me, there isn't one." Isaiah forty four eight. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So, and there's way more you could go to, you know. Uh, you think of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Here are, you know, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A lot of texts you could go to that demonstrates monotheism. And what he's saying is clearly as, I don't even know any other God beside me. I mean, come on. How much more clear can it be? Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, says, speaking of Christ, says he's the preeminence. Uh, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. Very clear verse. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take this and distort this verse 
And that's one of the, again, one of the reasons I say that their Bible is a, a perverse translation. It adds the word other four times. For by him all other things is what the text will add. Uh, and the, the devious thing about this, and I brought this up to the Jehovah's Witnesses Friday when they came over, and uh, they've been very generous, very nice, very nice people, folks. I'm not denigrating them at all. Um, they gave me a copy of 2013, uh, the new translation, uh, but and I had an older copy, the 1984, and then they gave me a, a nice big hardback uh, of the 84 edition. And what I brought up to them was this: in in the 84 edition and the other ones. Uh, when you're reading a text and it has brackets around the text, I asked this to this gentleman. We'll call him uh, Mr. Fred. We'll use that name. That's not his, not his name, but we'll use that name. Mr. Fred, if you're reading the text in the watchtower here and you see that it has brackets around there, what does that mean? Uh, it means that uh, the New World Translation has inserted that. Uh, maybe to make it more clear, whatever. I said, oh, so it's it's not in the original. No, no, it's, it's inserted in there by the New World Translation. I said, so this is where my issue is. If you read your 2013 edition, or your 1984 edition, so I do not agree in any way, shape, or form with this fact that it's got these brackets. You don't see this in any other text. And we looked through numerous other Bible versions. He thought for sure. He thought for sure it was going to be in the King James and uh, etc. And it wasn't. And I knew it wasn't. And I told him it wasn't. But he looked anyway and he saw for himself. And I said, uh, the problem is, of course, you got these brackets on here, which means that's the word other is not in the original text. Um, and if you took the brackets out and you read it, you'd come to the conclusion Jesus is the creator of all things, not all other things. And he agreed. And I said, but the problem is this. You go to, and that's one problem. But the second problem that I have is the 2013 edition. When you go to that Bible, and you pull up that same verse, and the word "other" is inserted again four times. No different. The only difference is they've removed the brackets. They've removed the brackets. I think that's dishonest. I think that's dishonest, and I think that's deceptive. Because it makes it appear as though that's how it is in the original. And I don't tell you that. And so you're left to think that that's how the originals read. And uh, he didn't have an answer for that. He said, oh, well, I don't think they're trying to be deceptive. And, well, Mr. Paul, or uh, <laughs> Mr. Fred, I think they are being deceptive. You know, I, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. You know, I, I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. And so, as one who's skeptical and one who's an outsider, um, you know, I have these questions. And, uh, you know, to me, it looks bad. It looks very bad when you, there's things that are added to the text that's nowhere added in any other text. And... Uh, that's a problem. Hold on one second, folks. I want to grab something.
All right, I'm back. I know that's a no-no. Never to do that on the air, but I I wanted to grab this because why we're we're dealing with this part. One of the questions you asked them, and one of the questions I've asked him was, you know, Miss Fred, if uh, if the New World Translation is authoritative and if it's if it is correctly translated, like you're saying, who are the authors? Who or who are the, who are the translators? Who are the guys that? that did this translation from the Greek into the English. And uh, I already, you know, I know what the answer is going to be. The standard uh, Jehovah's Witness answer is, well, we don't know who who translated the text because these are men that are just, uh, you know, they're just humble men and they don't want any accolades and pats on the back and et cetera. And I said, you know, that's very uh, that's very admirable, and uh, you know, I respect that. But there's a bigger issue. How do I know if these guys know what they're doing? <laughs> you know, how do I know that these guys actually are trained in the language to translate? How do I know they're qualified? I said, Mr. Fred. I can grab my ESV study Bible and open it up, and you can see who the contributors are. Where did they go to school? What what did they study? How long, you know, etc. You can go in. What what what's you know what were their majors, etc. I can I can know that, but with the New World's translation, I can't know any of that. So yeah, you know, I guess if you're already a Jehovah's Witness, maybe that answer works. But if you're skeptical of the translation already. And you've you've been uh, shown, uh, and you've shown that there's issues of potential honesty. Um, I think it's important to know. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Fred, I know. Again, Mr. Fred, Fred's not his real name. I'm not using his real name. But I said, Mr. Fred, I know who the translators were. I know who they were. He says, you do? How do you know that? Well, because several people that have left the Watchtower have come out and they've named the names. Frederick Franz, he was a liberal arts student at the University of Cincinnati. He had 21 hours of classical Greek and some Latin. 21 hours. Now, the issue is this. New Testament is primarily Koine Greek, not classical Greek. So he he wasn't trained in that. Uh, He partially completed a two-hour, two-hour, survey course in biblical Greek in junior year. Partially partially completed a two-hour survey. He was self-taught in Spanish, biblical Hebrew, and Aramaic. Now, this got bad for him. This was 1954, November 24th, which was a Wednesday in a court of law in Edinburgh, Scotland, 1954. Friends, was challenged. This is in, you can read this in The Kingdom of the Cults, uh, Walter Martin's uh, book. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is uh, the one that Ravi Zacharias edited. There's one that Hank Hanegraaff edited, but they're both, I mean, they're both fine works. But uh, the one in, with Ravi Zacharias, uh, Walter Martin recounts the story of how he was put to the test. Uh, it was translating a verse in Genesis, I want to say Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2, one verse. Uh, he was asked, do you know Hebrew? He claimed that he did know Hebrew. was challenged uh, on the on the stand. Translate a, a particular verse from Hebrew 
and uh, he couldn't. He could not do it. This, of course, should raise red flags. Okay, Frank. Now, this is the the sad thing. Frederick Franz was the most qualified one out of this whole group. George Genghis, uh, no training in biblical languages. Uh, he translated the Watchtower uh, language into modern Greek because uh, he was a native of Turkey. Again, modern Greek is not the same as biblical Greek or Koine Greek, etc. Uh, he had no training in biblical languages. Milton Herschel, no training in biblical languages. Carl Klein, no training in biblical languages. Nathan Knorr, no training in biblical languages. Albert Schroeder, majored in mechanical engineering three years before dropping out. Three years before dropping out. <laughs> And so, folks, that's what I'm saying. That's uh, that's some of the issues with this. Uh, and he saw he saw there was an issue with that. I mean, they didn't, they didn't pound the point home as much as I probably could have, but he saw the issue. He saw it was a problem. I didn't want to, you know, upset him and have him leave. But he, you know, he said, "Look, if you don't want to use an oral translation, that's fine. Use what you're using." Uh, let's again. Let's look a little closer here at Colossians one fifteen through seventeen. Again, he says, uh, you know, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. This is one that Jehovah's Witnesses jump on right away. It's important to know that firstborn does not mean first created. Different Greek word, firstborn, prototokos, does not mean first created. Prototikos, not the same. Firstborn can mean firstborn in the family or preeminence, okay? doesn't mean first created, though. Uh, so first, it can, it can mean firstborn biologically, or it can mean uh, as a status of preeminence. The context determines it, right? And this is how it is with a lot of, uh, a lot of language, a lot of words. You have a word... It can mean three or four different things. Context determines it. Now, what he'd have to show is firstborn always means biologically firstborn. But that's not what the text always means. For example, Manasseh is called firstborn, and Ephraim was really the firstborn. Uh, you have this in Jeremiah 31, 9, where Ephraim's called firstborn. Psalm 89, 27, David is called firstborn. And he was actually biologically the lastborn. So firstborn does not guarantee it always mean biologically firstborn. Context determines it. And, you know, as the Reformers talked with the analogy of faith, you have to weigh the scriptures. You have to go by the text. When you do that, you don't just make a you know one doctrine off of a particular verse. You have to weigh all of the scriptures and all of the texts. When you do that, uh, I think it's pretty clear Jesus is God. Hebrews one five one through five. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint in his nature of his nature. And he upholds the world, upholds the universe by the word of his 
power. And that's where it gets interesting. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Folks, that right there devastates Jehovah's Witness theology. That absolutely devastates that claim that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel. Jesus, uh, he, he never said that to the angel. He never said that I have begotten to you, etc. Uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, you know, just the book of Hebrews in general is a nightmare for the Jehovah's Witnesses because it's dealing with the, with the angel worship. Uh, one of the things it's dealing with there is angel worship. Well, let's look at some of the, let's let's look at a theological test here. Let's look at the theological test. So the attributes of God. So you have what's called the communicable attributes. When we speak of God's communicable attributes, uh, we're referring primarily to His moral attributes, such as love, goodness, and kindness. Because we bear God's image, there is a manner in which we exhibit these attributes by way of analogy. So. And I've had this happen several times where Mormons will say that they it's justified to say God the Father is a is a man and a physical being because after all the Bible says we're made in the image of God. But look, folks, this is what we know. Again, there's several there's several places you could go on this. Okay, John four twenty four, God is spirit. Luke twenty four thirty nine, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. If God is a spirit, the spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, therefore a spirit does not have flesh and bone. So whatever it means to be created in the image of God, and theologians will, will sometimes you know, debate about that, whatever it means, it can't mean physically that God is a physical being. It's not what it's saying. So we have, what uh, again, what these uh, some theologians will call communicable attributes. Uh, these are these a- attributes that are shared. Of course, it's always by way of analogy. Right, uh, how I love and how God loves, it, it, it's not exactly different, uh, equivocal, it's not exactly the same, univocal, uh, but it's analogical. There's a way in which this uh, they're similar. Uh, look to uh, you read on uh, Thomas Aquinas on this. If you want a really excellent uh, work on this, Dr. Norm Geisler and Wid, uh, Winfred Cordwin, uh, who we've had on the show about a month ago, wrote a philosophy of religion text several years ago, uh, but they have a whole chapter on God talk. It's an ex- excellent book. I mean, it really is. whole whole uh, thing on problem of evil, God talk, arguments for God's existence, etc. Uh, and you can, you can learn a little bit more about uh, the God talk. And communicable attributes, okay? The term communicable refers to attributes which are not communicated in the sense of passed on to his finite creation, meaning basically God alone as these. These are, these are attributes that are true of God and true of him alone. No creature, no created being has any share in these attributes. Now, some of these, we'll go through a few of these, and uh, as I was teaching this to my good friends at the, uh, at the Methodist Church, it invoked some lively discussion. 
which is great, 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 uh, wonderful folks up there at the uh, Methodist Church in our Sunday school class. Uh, some of these attributes, though, the aseity, right? This is dealing with the self-existence. Uh, God is not brought into existence by anything else. He's the prime mover, as Aristotle would say. Uh, simplicity, that God is indivisibly, both uh, indivisibility. He cannot be separated. He doesn't have parts. Uh, obviously physically, because he's not a uh, physical being, but also we would say uh, metaphysically. Uh, and this, of course, would probably run into some uh, differences between some of the more modern evangelical philosophers. Um, you know, I I, am a, I go to school at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and we are trained in classical theism and heavily in uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and so I'm kind of on board with that. Um Necessity, meaning God is not uh, contingent, he's a necessary being, uh, immutable, especially with respect to his uh, nature, not necessarily with respect to his activities. This was causing a lot of uh, a lot of confusion at that church because they would say things like, well, you know, why pray? <laughs> you know, if God's not going to answer your prayer, etc. And I you know, we got into a little bit about the explaining the difference between activities and the attributes of God. Uh, the big one was impassibility. Classical theism says God is without passions. God can't suffer. God can't hurt. God can't, you know, he doesn't have you know, these you know, emotions, etc. Um, again, there are a lot of evangelical, uh, even philosophers that would disagree with that. That's fine. I don't want to get too hung up on that. Uh, again, I'm a classical theist. Uh, eternity, right? God is non-temporal, uh, immense. He's not measurable. We talk about the unity of God. That is, uh, God is one in His essence and nature. Uh, God is omniscient. He knows all true propositions or states of affairs. Uh, omnipotence. God is. Uh, that is, uh, God can do that which is logically possible. He can't do, you know, idiocy. He can't do square circles or married bachelors or things like that. Uh, and omnipresent. He's everywhere at every point in, in space. So these are some of the incommunicable attributes that are shared from God to his creatures. Aseity, this, uh, a few of these, this comes from the Latin, meaning literally, of oneself, used by God. Uh, it denotes that he exists in and of himself, independent of anything else. He is self-existent. Uh, the biblical basis for God's aseity is found in the fact that, one, he exists prior to and is independent of creation. Right? This is one of the, the reasons we know theism is different than pantheism. Pantheism, pantheism is, is God is in all and all is in God. But, again, uh, if you guys go back, I did the talk on God and science. We looked at the beginning of the universe the universe has not been here forever. That's <laughs> a problem for the pantheist. The universe came into existence. Uh, so he exists prior to and is independent of creation. Think of the painting and the painter, right? The, uh, the painting is a product of the painter, but the painter is not the painting. The painter is independent of the painting. Talk about transcendence and immanence. God transcends space-time. He's also imminent in that he's working with creation, in creation, but he's not uh, in creation as though he emanates from creation. 
like a pantheist or New Age person would believe. So first, uh, again, the basis for the aseity is that he exists prior to the creation. Second, and independent of creation. Second, he brought it into and sustains in existence everything else that is. Look at Thomas Aquinas's third way. Both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is self-existent. Right? They both had a beginning. They both had a creation. Both groups affirm that Jesus was dependent upon the Father to bring him into existence. Both groups would affirm that Jesus is part of the creation and a created being sometime in the finite past. Now, we could say that of Jesus uh, uh, in the human nature, the human nature of Jesus. Now, Jesus is only one person. So Jesus, the you know, the divine nature, Jesus, the person, he's always been from everlasting to everlasting. Though the finite human nature did have a beginning at one time in the past, Jesus himself, second person of the Trinity, never had a beginning. The fact, again, that the universe comes into existence demonstrates from the philosophical, theological, and scientific evidence that the Mormon claim is false. Mormonism claims the universe is eternal. Mormonism claims Jesus had a beginning. But we know, again, scientific evidence, the universe is not eternal. The universe had a beginning. You look at the Kalam cosmological argument for that, folks. So, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise one, premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe had a cause. Now, we're speaking in this category. We're theists. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are theists, so I don't need to get into this big elaborate you know, defense of the Kalam as far as, well, how do you know it was God that created? Because they already, they're already theists. They already believe God created. The question is, did the universe have a beginning? If it did then the Mormon claim is false, that the universe is eternal. Um, you know, again, for my Mormon friends, you know, um, it's pretty good evidence that the universe began to exist. Um, so, you know, what you going to do with that? But <clears throat> immutability that... Uh, immutability of God means that God is unchanging. More specifically, God is unchanging in his character, his will, uh, etc. Uh, Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, I'd also uh, uh, talk about. Um, Geisler has a has very good uh, philosophical systematic theology. Uh, volume 2 is very good. Now, with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, both groups affirm that Jesus had a beginning at one time and did not exist at one time. Both groups affirm that God changes uh, in both his nature and his attributes, right? Jesus can become a God. Uh, in Jehovah's Witnesses theology, Michael, Jesus was Michael the Archangel, came down here, took on, you know, flesh, and then went back up there, spiritually resurrected. They deny the physical resurrection, folks, uh, and say that Jesus went back to uh, being Michael the Archangel. Again, uh, that's changes. Uh, the omniscience of God deals with what God knows. The term literally means all-knowing, understanding God's knowledge to be exhaustive of both the past, present, and future. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. 
So, again, the theological test. Premise 1, God possesses all possible and actual knowledge. Premise 2, Jesus is God. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus possesses all possible and actual knowledge. Both groups, uh, as far as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, both groups deny that Jesus uh, has been omniscient from eternity. Both groups affirm uh, that Jesus... Uh, both groups affirm that Jesus progressed in both wisdom and knowledge. And again, as Christians, we could say that of the human nature, but not of the divine nature. He can't learn. He has the same nature as the Father, the same nature as the Holy Spirit. Both groups would affirm that the Father has more knowledge than the Son. Again, this in Orthodox Christian theology, this is, that would be heresy. Utter heresy. Well, what we could say is we've discovered that the Jesus of Mormonism and the Jesus of Watchtower both fail both the textual test and the theological test. They fail these tests, folks. I mean, we've gone over it. We've looked at it. Looked at some of the arguments. There's an uh, internal coherence test. They fail that, I would say, because. Uh, especially with Jehovah's Witnesses, they're claiming that they're, you know, there's, uh, that they're monotheists, but in reality, when you press them, they're really henotheists. Uh, <clears throat> with Mormonism, again, you could you can look at the scientific evidence, you can look at the textual evidence. Again, the scientific evidence, as far as the universe having a beginning, the textual evidence, uh, with God saying, "There's no, there's not a God before me. There's not a God after me. I don't even know of any other God." Those are some major issues. So let's kind of look at this practically. How do we share our faith? Well, cults will use the same kind of terminology as Orthodox Christians, so you must ask them to define their terms. Again, folks, I don't say the word cults in a derogatory uh, meaning or fashion, so please don't think that's what I mean. Again, we're just using uh, cults here in a theological uh, context, Okay. Uh, second, be sure to pray before and after your encounters. You know, sometimes we think we, you know, we just we got this and we don't need to pray, and we do. We need to pray because ultimately it's got to be a work of God, the Holy Spirit, that opens the heart. I'm a good Calvinist, I'm, you know, I believe that, uh, but you don't have to be a Calvinist to believe that. All all Christians should believe that. You pray before your encounter. You pray after your encounter. Demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, fruits of the Spirit, right? First Peter 3.15, again, we're defending the faith, but you also have to have Galatians 5. We want to demonstrate that we're, we're out of the world. We are different. We've been redeemed. We've been blood-bought. We've been changed. We don't win arguments through assassinating people's character. We win arguments by demonstrating uh, that our arguments are true and they're right. And they're correct. Because they're built on truth. They're not built on lies. One of us is wrong. That's just the bottom line. That's the one thing uh, you know, Mr. Fred said when we you know we were sat we sat down and uh, you know been about a third or fourth meeting he says you know Devin uh, you know as he's getting ready to go he says uh one of us is wrong you know uh, he says if Jesus is God 
and the, and uh, you know, like you're saying, and the Trinity is truly God. I'm in trouble. He says, but you know, if I'm if I'm right and the Trinity is a false God, then you're in trouble. Now, did I get angry and offended and you t- tell me I'm wrong and throw him out of my house? No, he's right. He's absolutely right, and I found it refreshing to not have this squishy, mushy. You know, we're all true, we're all right, kind of. No, we're not. That's the beauty about logic. It's the beauty of the law of non-contradiction. We can't both be right. Can't both be right, folks. So we 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 take that and we challenge that and we you know we accept that. So these are just you know these are some points you can do when you're when you're talking to your Jehovah's Witness friends. And uh, and your Mormon friends demonstrate the, the demonstrate the uh, the fruit of of uh, right of uh, patience, etc. Love them, really love them. That's one thing we've been trying to do with these guys. Been really trying to love them, you know, not just try and beat them over the head with the Bible or or win an argument. I care about these people. Please care about the people. You know that's. Uh, sometimes apologetics can be like a sport, you know, and you're just, you know, wanting to knock someone out with an argument. Don't do that. Treat them as people. Love them. Remember that those in the cults are not the enemy. Those in the cults are not the enemy, right? They work for the enemy, but they're not the enemy. I think it helps to remember that the reason you're a Christian is not because you're smarter wiser or more useful to God than others. You're a Christian because of amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. That's a biblical perspective. That should make us um that should make us be very uh, humble and not arrogant, not rude. So as we kind of wrap up here, some resources. Uh, Folks, I would highly recommend all the stuff by the books uh, on the cults by uh, Ron Rhodes. Uh, He's written other stuff on prophecy and uh, et cetera. Uh, You know, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I don't particularly agree with his views on that stuff. But his stuff on the cults is awesome. His uh, his reasoning from the scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. He's got one on uh, Mormons, Let's see, uh, Masons, Catholics, etc. Good, good stuff. Uh, Dr. Norm Geisler's book, uh, and Ron Rhodes also wrote a book, uh, When Cultists Ask, uh, Gleason Archer, uh, their their book, uh, Hard Sayings of the Bible, excellent work, as long with, along with uh, a big book of Bible difficulties, which was formerly When Critics Ask. Uh, it goes from, from Genesis to Revelation, on all the supposed contradictions, uh, excellent books. Uh, the New Mormon Challenge is one of the probably the most rigorous books I've ever seen. Um, as far as arguments against Mormonism, they bring in some of the top Christian philosophers, and uh, it's it's astounding. I mean, they use like the Kalam cosmological argument against the infinite number of gods. I mean, it's. It's awesome. Frank Beckwith, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland. Uh, that's that is probably the most powerful book I've ever read. That is like high-powered, uh, 
high-powered ammo right there that will help you, again, not just win an argument, but be ready to have an answer. So, folks, we appreciate you guys joining us. We we we, uh, we love your prayers and your support. We're thankful for uh, all the support you guys have, have given us to me and my wife. Uh, again, please... Um, Please continue to pray for us as we have to, uh, you know, again, we don't know the end from the beginning on this uh, with the cancer and that, and, and uh, it is a little bit, uh, it is, you know, it can make you a little bit worried. So pray for peace, pray for patience, and, uh, you know, pray that uh, everything will turn out okay. And, um, you know, we're going to give God the glory. You know, regardless, we're going to give God all the glory. So we look forward, God willing, coming back again uh, next week, and we'll be all hopefully have a guest on, and uh, we'll be talking about some of these important issues again. So join us again next week for another edition of Theology Matters. God bless.